Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. Hi, Sunday afternoon, and um, I'm going to do something. And since last week I did the British, I mean, not the British, but the Rizhiner, uh Rebbe, so I put my mind in 19th century Chassidim uh, and especially 19th century Israel. And I may mention him this and back, whose grandson or whatever great descendant is my son-in-law, actually. And then I figured, you know what the heck, I'll do that one. I'll give it a shot. Uh, very interesting uh, phenomenon. But you got to know a lot of the 19th century history, what's going on in Palestine, which is always very complicated. Um, today's podcast is being sponsored. I have two sponsors, actually. Uh, today's the yard set of two people that I knew quite well. Uh, first, our sponsors are um, the children of Representative Shabalski, a taste her yard site. Uh, many of us remember her. Uh, so this would be Tzipar Frager and her family, and C.B. Dinowitz and her family, and Rabbi Yanko Shabalski and his family. It's their mom. And it's been quite a while. I can't believe I thought it was, you know, if you asked me, I would say it's five, six, seven years, but it's more than that. And... Uh, Mevitzin Shavasi was a tough character. She had a strong personality, very much like the Ashkenazi women of the Middle Ages she used to run these businesses while the husband learned. I mean, it's, it's interesting. Yeah, she's, she's like a medieval uh, model in that way. And uh, the best part, and they told me this at the, at the Hesped for Rabbi Shavasi, uh she was sitting shiva for somebody, and he was a driver at that time. He was a shiva guy. Of Rabbi Shanker, it was a Chasha Rabbi back in old Baltimore. Rabbi Shanker said, let's go visit the Shiva house. He already had in mind, maybe they'll meet and fall for each other and get married. That's what happened. So those he brought the guy to, so let's just go to the Shiva house. And they met, it was a, you know, and they love at first sight, as they say. And they got married. It sounds funny to say, where'd you meet? You submitted the Shiva house. I'll tell you something. When me, myself and I, when I was sitting Shiva for my mom years ago, my daughter did that, meaning she had a friend. A certain person came to the Shiva house, and this, whatever, I won't go into details. And my daughter said, that would be good for a friend of mine. And that's what happened. You know, it's her stranger things. Uh, but anyway, she was very strong. And I think, I'm not I'm not sure, but I believe Representative Shavalsky might have been the first one behind my own Shiva. I think. At least that's what she used to tell me. So, um, anyway, so we pay tribute to her memory today. And today's also the art site of uh, Jake Shulkman, my very good friend, uh, who I mentioned before, and uh, his son Moshe and Michal and family are sponsoring today to, uh, also. Um, we had a, I guess you'd say, a, a see him in the morning in the shul in his memory. And the lectures last night was sponsored by Eitan. And uh, Jake was a real prince, as everybody knows. And you know, I thought I heard all the stories, but a friend of mine came in from Eretz Yisrael this past week, and he told me when he was, this is going back many years, and his parents sent him to public school. We're going back a long time ago. I'm talking for high school, and he felt all discombobulated, 
And Jay Shukman, who taught in the public school system for many years and became a big principal and so forth, that time was teaching him poly, and he put him at his ease. And this guy's remembering this 50 years later. That's my point. He's remembered this 50 years later. Uh, that's pretty remarkable. So, as they say, for both Jake Shulman and for Rebson, Esther Shavalsky, and the Shamashad Avanaliyah, and we thank the families for paying tribute in their memories on their yard sites in this way. Um, as I said, talking about somebody many people haven't heard of, that'd be Nissen Beck in um, the 1800s. So he lived from 1815 to something like 1890, something like that. So now, uh, 75 years or thereabouts. And very unusual person. But most of the people I know, this is not, he wasn't a rov of a town or any of that kind of thing, the way we talk about. He is what you would call one of the, he and his father, actually, uh, one of the builders of modern Israel. Is that the right way to put it? No, I'm going to say something that's going to sound funny, but I don't mean it to be funny. He's one of the builders of the Yishav HaYashan. Not the Yishav HaKadosh, the Yishav HaYashan. You probably think Meisharim's been there for a thousand years, but Meisharim didn't exist for the 1870s. See what I'm saying? And a lot of things in Israel, you think, oh, they've been here a long time. They're not there for so long. It was come out nothing there 200 years ago, or a little more net, especially Ashkenaz. So everything we consider, oh, it's been there in Israel and the Haredim and this and that for a long time. They're not so long. And it has a history. And our hero today and his family is a big part of that history. So here we go. Talking about somebody who was Hasidish, uh, born eighteen fifteen, as soon as the Napoleonic Wars are over, uh, in Berdichev, which is in the Russian Empire by that time. Berdichev is, of course, a uh, town with a majority Jewish population in Ukraine, which by then was the province of Tsarist Russia. The father, Israelback, which is the name of my son also, the Israelback was a um, printer. This is very important. Listen closely to what I'm going to tell you. Hebrew printing was a rare art. I mean, to actually put together a printing press, like Benjamin Franklin style, to create Hebrew letters with Nikudos, without Nikudos. For example, for Sidurim and things like that, you need Nikudos. Uh, so you have to physically make those like wooden or metal things, whatever they are. You have to fashion them. And you have to know, obviously, how to uh, you know, typeset and all that other business. So it was, it's a, it was a big technical skill. Today, it's all you know, computerized. But I'm talking about then. Um, there have not ever been, in the history of the Jewish people, a whole lot of Jewish printing houses, publishing houses, you know, where you physically publish the books. There are some. Many farm were published by Christian publishing houses because the skills were not as wide as you imagine. Okay? Um, but there were Jews also. And this family went back in history. Knows it was a... It was a family business from Prague and maybe earlier, for all I know, that they were into this kind of thing. I'll say it again. There weren't so many printing presses as you imagine. Now, when the Hasidic movement started and the Becks became Hasidim, when the Hasidic movement started, <laughs> very interesting because the Hasidim have a lot of Hasidic forum and things like that. Um, so that gave a big impetus to the Jewish uh, book publishing. Isn't that interesting? They also published a lot of, uh, uh, what do you call it, Kabbalistic classics. That's all smooth by itself. Starting in the 1780s, there was a lot of printing done by the different Hasidic groups, and they set up uh, printing presses. It used to be in the whole Poland, there was like one or two in Zalkiv and somewhere else. 
And so, look, it's a, it's a thing by itself. This guy, Avram Yari, that I talked about, history of Simcha Story, he used to write about history of specific printing presses. There weren't many. Now, I mean, that's if you're a real history nerd, you know. Now, uh, here's the thing. The guy's born in 1815. No, it's our hero, born in 1815, which means he grows up, he's 15 years old in 1830. Uh, what happens when he's 10 years old? The czars changed. He used to be Alexander I, who died under mysterious circumstances, and his brother became Tsar Nicholas I, who was the Tsar of Russia for 30 years, from 1825 1855. Almost from day one, they started screwing over the Jews. Okay? So, if you show me somebody like the Back family, who says, we're getting out of here, there's a lot of good reasons. First of all, they made it hard to print books. And they super-increased the police censorship uh, because the Moskilim were saying that from printing houses are publishing Kabbalistic nonsense and things like this. And the Russians wanted to micromanage uh, the printing presses, which they did do. They heavily censored everything. So that's a turnoff right away. That's number one. Number two, Nicholas I, in 1827-28, started the Cantonist system which they're drafting even the little kids, as you know. So this guy says, I don't want to get my kids to get you know, drafted in the army. Plus, being Hasidish, <clears throat> he really was caught up in Eretz Yisrael, and so they moved to Israel, which is most unusual in, in 1831, when the kid is 16 years old, 15, 16. What you have to understand is, <clears throat> Hasidus, classically, includes many elements. One of them, not the only one of them, is a big longing for Eretz Yisrael. Which is why I think a lot of them believed when she was around the corner, there was a very big belief that in 1840 is the year Mashiach is coming. If you read, um, what's his name? Zichron Yaakov from uh, Yaakov Alevi Livshitz, which I did once on these podcasts. Yitzhak Hanan's uh, secretary. In his Hebrew, Haredi, rendition of modern Jewish history, I remember he has a chapter there, The Expectations of 1840. I hear 1830, you know, so figure 10 years away from a Shia time. Plus, really, <clears throat> Talmidim of the Baal Shemto and of the Magid were among those who were literally the first Ashkenazic people make Aliyah. The first ones were the Hasidim. The Misnagdim came later. They came also early, the Talmidia grow. The Hasidim call themselves Hasidim. The Misnagdim call themselves Prushim. Okay? Chassid and Parsha is the same thing. Read the Misilish Sharm. Chassid means you go extra in Kumbase. Parsh means you go extra in Sheval Tyson. You know, in, in, in staying away from things. It's the same idea. Super from. And without going to too many details, all through the late 70s, 80s, and 90s of the 1700s, and the first years of the 1800s, that's when you start to get groups for the first time of Eastern European Jews who are making group aliyah. A lot of them die on the way. They die when they get to Israel because of the bad climate and all that. But they keep coming. And also, as I said before, the Prussian. These are the guys who are literally the founders of the, you know, uh, the modern aliyah, uh, the Yeshua Yashan. The from world, I'll use a word, even though it's not accurate, but I'll use a word that you'll understand. These are the founders of Meisharm, so to speak. Okay? 
that whole thing. Because before that, there were almost no Ashkenazi Jews in Israel. I think I talked about that once when we spoke about Am Gershon Kutubur long ago. So here you are in the 1800s. Israel doesn't exist. It's the Turkish province of Palestine, which is much part of the whole glob called the Turkish super province of Syria. So as far as the Turks are concerned, they rule the area, the Ottoman Turks. The whole area, what you and I today call Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, Israel, Jordan, Gaza, all that stuff, it's one big glob, which actually was good for the Jews in a certain way. It certainly didn't lead or prevented or retarded the development of a nationalist consciousness. A part of the what you today call the Palestinians. It's a long schmooze, but that's what happened. And uh, that's what the Jews moved to. Now, um, conditions were bad. The public health was bad. Used to be like in Montefiore's time, you know, you had to land and spend two weeks in quarantine, like we do now with the corona, to see if you have the diseases and whatever. Uh, you might have leprosy, all kind of stuff. And once he got in, it wasn't pushed either. Now, the Ottoman Turks were ruling, but it was the local governor who had the real power, you know, a day-to-day basis. And the local governors were like, wishy-washy. But now I'm going to speak about the mega trends. In spite of everything I just said, the 1800s is when things start to change significantly in a plus way for the Jewish immigration. Classically, the Muslim authorities implemented very harsh laws against Judaism. For example, you're not allowed to build a new shul. Can't build it, can't be high. You have to pay super crazy taxes. Then Arab has the right to beat you up. Lots of different things. And there's nothing you could say about it. The Turkish Empire was the Turkish Empire. They could do whatever the heck you wanted. The most you could do was Find a Jew who knows another Jew, like Achash, like Mordecai, who knows Achashverosh, you know? Find somebody who knows the Pasha and can, you know, win some favor for you. That's all they could do. Starting in the 1800s, the Middle East started to change to some degree. And Palestine was affected by this. And affected the Jews also, including our hero and his family. If you ever look at the map, the Turks used to have a gigantic empire, the Ottoman Turkish Empire. And they're always expanding and conquering. And the 14th, 15th, 1600s, the Turks, you know, took over a third of Europe. They had Budapest, they had Hungary, Romania, a nice chunk of what we call today uh, Ukraine, Crimea, all that stuff. The Black Sea was all a Muslim sea run by the Turks. The Europeans started to make a counterattack in the late 1600s. The Austrians got back hungry, but that's all they got. They were not strong enough to go fight there. The big problem for Turkey was Russia, which is north of there. The Russian Empire started significantly expanding. They had one war after another with the Turks. I mean, they had 20 wars, and they won them. And each time they took another piece from Turkey, until by the time you finish with Catherine the Great, they've completely destroyed the Turkish Empire in the north part of the Black Sea, as they got to the Black Sea, Crimea, Odessa, those areas. And now they're moving down like Pac-Man to conquer and take over the rest. And the Russian army was better than the Turkish army. Now, every time they had a war, 
I mean, you think I'm it had in the 1760s and it had in the 1790s, and in, in, in the middle of the Napoleonic Wars, they had in 1806, and they had in 1812, and then 1829, and one after the other. And the Russians always won. So if it would be up to the Russians, they would conquer the Turkish Empire and then move on and take over the whole Middle East if they were not checked. So Russia would expand southward. It would include the whole area of the old Roman Empire, the Byzantine Empire. The Russians would have uh, what we call today, I don't know, Turkey and Iraq and, and Israel and Syria and Egypt and who knows what. And Arabia, why not? The Russians are not going to stop them. In order to prevent this from happening, Russia becoming too strong, so Turkey needed help from the British and the French. And that's called the balance of power. And in the 1800s, that's what happened. The British and the French said, we're afraid of Russia. Therefore, we're going to support Turkey and the Turkish Empire that the Russians shouldn't wipe them out. Because that was the case, Turkey was weaker. And to some degree, they had to kiss up to the, to the French and the British. And even to some degree, some of the other countries, you know, uh, the European countries, the Austrians and whatever, even the Russians they're afraid of. So if you're Jewish, and if you move to Palestine in the 1800s, and if you retain your citizenship, I'm a citizen of Russia, I'm a citizen of the Austrian Empire, I'm a citizen of a place, Germany, whatever. So when you come to Israel, you will be protected to a certain degree by the local consuls from these countries. So Yoshalayim, for example, had an American consulate, a British, a French, Prussian, Austrian, I don't know, Russian. And these guys had power because of the politics that I just described and the weakness of the Turkish Empire caused the Turks to say, we'd like to beat this Jew, but if the Austrian consul says, well, take off Austria or British or something like that, maybe we better just leave it alone. And so the position of the Claudius Yisrael improved slowly over the course of the 1800s. And that's why the physical number of Jews that lived in Palestine significantly increased. Now, it took a long time for that to happen. Okay? It took a long time for that to happen. But it did. Now, our hero moved to uh, Israel, Palestine, in 1831, which is really early. Hardly anybody was there. Except there was Talmudi Agrah, those early Hasidim, and their successors. And he was a Hasidic guy. But, you know, when you get to, Israel, to Eretz Israel, there's so much trouble from the Turks, from the Arabs, and this and the other. The Jews had to stick together. You know, the Hasidim and Snagim couldn't afford to indulge their fights. Therefore, they made it their business to get along. That's rough. You know, I'm oversimplifying, but that's what happened. Which is a good thing. And so, um, the family moved to Eretz Yisrael. And they wanted to set up a business. So he had money. So he moved to Israel with capital. Uh, with the idea, the father, Yisrael Beck, of setting up a printing press and establishing a going business based on the following business model. We will print farm here in Eretz Yisrael. It will say printed in Eretz Yisrael, the Holy Land will export it to Europe, and Jews will say, this is totally cool to buy a Siddur, a Chumash, a Tanakh, a Mishnah, a Medush, a Gemara, whatever. 
and have the words printed in Eretz Yisrael. Today, you and I live in a world where it's not a big deal, but I'm talking about at that time. Right? There had not been a printing press in Israel since 1587. Okay? So there were no books in the 1600s and the 1700s ever printed in Israel. This guy came along with a business I'm There's nothing wrong with this. Everything is good. I'm saying there's nothing wrong with it. The Eifel is, we'll make a Haggadah, a Machs, or whatever. They'll say printed in Israel, printed in Svas, because he wanted to set up in Svas. What's wrong? Let me put it this way. Economically, that is the kind of immigration you want. You want people to come in with money, and set up a business, and hire in local people and provide employment. In his case, there are all these frummies living in Israel, right? That's all the only type of move. They don't have any employment. This is one, what you would call a frummy business. You'll be a reader and a helper in publishing farm. We'll show you the malacha to whatever degree. And that's what he did. At least that was the business model. Okay? This is, like I said before, this is in 1831. And um, this way he doesn't have to worry about his kids getting drafted by the Russian army. Okay? And now, by the way, in those days, to move to, move to make Aliyah, six-month journey. I want you to understand. This is before the railroad and all the rest of it. That came 20 years later. We're talking over here in the old-fashioned way. So it took a half year just to get there. It moves to its spot. They buy a house. I repeat, he came with money. So he didn't just hop, plop, move to Israel. Obviously, he was a business-type guy, a chidish businessman, as we would say today, with all the pluses of that. And so he counted his money. He, he had, like I said before, a business plan, a model. And they're going to move to Israel and they build a place. And fine, so on and so forth. I mean, it's it's a good idea. Okay? It was a good idea. And they published a, a Sparty Sitter and things like that. Okay, fine. After he came there, he came with his assistant. And then he told the assistant and his son, our hero, who was 16 years old, go back to Russia, bring the rest of the family. <laughs> right? So this is crazy. I mean, I guess when you're younger in good health, to make a crazy journey, look at the map. And then look at the map in 1830, you see what a long journey, a difficult journey was. Now, I can only imagine that they took a ship from Israel, from Yaffa, wherever, to go to Istanbul, from Istanbul to Odessa, all the way across the, the, the Black Sea. And then from Odessa, you, you head to uh, to Berdichev. Um, I wonder how far Berdichev is from Odessa. That's actually a good question. One second. Okay, it's 300 and some miles. So, you know, you you got to take a ship here and here, about a thousand miles, and then you travel by land 300, 300, 350 miles. Okay, and then bring the family back, reverse it. And it's very interesting because on the, this boy, Nissen, must have been very precocious because he had the Mala kid on the ship. You know, when 90 people joined him because once they heard him making Aliyah, they found 90 people, seen him, and um, they were on the ship in the Black Sea, and the lady gave birth, and eight days later, he did the bris. I wouldn't do it if I was 17 years old, but okay. And meanwhile, he overheard, I don't know how, that the ship captain was planning to screw over the Jews, and this is the Turkish Empire where it was still slavery. Instead of taking him to their proper destination, he's going to take him to a certain place and sell them for slaves. This could happen very easily. In the Turkish Empire. And our hero was smart enough 
that when the ship stopped to get some water and food, on an island he went to the Turkish governor. He must have learned Turkish. I don't know how. He must have learned Turkish. He told him, this captain is about to do this to us. And the governor stopped him. He said, I know what you're up to, and these people better reach their destination safely. So it's just uh, interesting, right? He said, you know, you're going to drop them off at Akko, and on the way back, I better get a receipt from you, otherwise you're going to be under arrest. So it's just, it just shows you it's resourceful. So the following some were resourceful. Uh, now, here comes the thing. The idea was, set up a business in Spas, and everything should go great. However, um, he's there in the 1830s. Now, I know this doesn't mean anything to you, but in the history of Palestine is actually very, very important. Because, in this regard, this reminds me of, of Parshish Lechacha that we just finished, and Avraham Avinu showing up in Israel. And when Avraham Avinu shows up in Israel, there's a war going on between the four kings and the five. He walks right into it. So in the case of our hero, Nissenbeck, and his father, what happened in 1830 was the following. A war was raging of an unexpected nature. Um, the Turkish Empire had many provinces, including Egypt. Egypt is a rich and powerful province. So the Turkish government always appointed a governor, a pasha, over Egypt. But it's just almost natural that anybody who was for a while a governor of Egypt, with so much money and power, everything coming in, started to say, maybe I can rebel and set up business for myself. Why do I have to be under the sultan of Turkey, of the Ottoman Empire in Constantinople? I'll be my own boss. As a result, every time a governor was in there, the Turkish government would surround them with spies. And when they would find out the guy's plotting, they would bump him off. They would kill him, poison him, somehow chop his head off, whatever. The history of the 15th, 16th, 1700s is replete with this. But what happened in the 1800s was, because of the complications in the Napoleonic Wars, there was a governor who was able to beat the system. His name was Mehmed Ali. He's originally from Albania. And he was a very smart guy in many respects. And he was able to do what I just said, which is to build up a power base in Turkey, I mean in Egypt, so he doesn't need the sultan anymore. Uh, so long and complicated story, so I won't give you all the details. Suffice it to say, this Mehmet Ali was extremely intelligent, and he started the process of westernizing the country. Uh, a major element of... By the way, it used to be the Mamluks. He would invite them all to a party and kill them. I mean, you know, that's Mamish Middle Eastern stuff. That's what happened. So anyway, this Mehmet Ali um, created a modern Egyptian army. The Hainu, he got French guys who were already retired, used to work for Napoleon. He paid them double salary. They came to Egypt and gave modern training to the Egyptians. So they had a Western army with the drill, the discipline, and the marches, and the modern weapons, all that junk. So it means he's the only guy in the Middle East that has that. The Turks used him to conquer Saudi Arabia. Or at that time, you had the Saudis, the Wahhabis, causing trouble. The Mehmet Ali took an Egyptian army in and had a big war in Arabia. I remember he marched 400 miles into the desert to crush their, their headquarters. And he was quite a guy. Now, he had a son. I mean, a guy like that has many sons. he got a harem. But he had one son who was very capable. Avraham or Ibrahim Pasha. 
who is his son and his best general. In 1830, right around the time our hero comes to Israel, a machlokis broke out between Mehmed Ali on the one hand and the Turkish government on the other. And he said, to heck with this, I'm taking down the sultan, and I'm going to become the sultan of Turkey. After all, I've got a good army, and he doesn't, which was quite true. And so his son, Ibrahim Pasha, invaded, marched out of Egypt, and went on a march of conquest in 1831, 32, whatever it was, uh, and took over Palestine and Syria, and even marched close to um, Constantinople. So it looked like Turkey was going to go down, not from the Russians, but from one of their Avonin. At that point, the Russians, the British, the French intervened. They said to Mehmed Ali, you better back off, or else we'll go after you. He was intelligent enough to know that wouldn't be successful. And so he backed off. But for 10 years, it was like this. I'm going to hold Palestine and Syria. I just won't invade Turkey. It was a tricky business. That's the 1830s. And that's when our hero shows up in Israel. Now, the t- when Ibrahim Pasha took over Palestine, he tried to modernize it, which blew up in his face because part of that means he wanted to introduce a draft conscription and modern tax system and not the complicated Turkish arrangements in which, you know, every sheik and his brother-in-law was free of taxes. I want to create a more modern state. This led to what we would today call a Palestinian uprising. But at that time, they wouldn't call Palestinians. They didn't even know, have a hava mean of that word. But nevertheless, the area of Eretz Israel, the Arabs, rose in a giant rebellion in 1834. Uh, when it's a rebellion, they attacked here, there, was a, it was a Hefkeris. And one of the things they did was attack our hero's printing press and destroy everything. Right? Because it was, Tom, you know, a, a rebellion going on. In the long run, Ibrahim Pasha came in with his crack troops and he slaughtered the rebels. These are Pashas that people don't know. They massacred Palestinians, as we say today, in Jerusalem and Hebron and in Nablus and all over the place. He crushed the rebellion. Boy, did he crush the rebellion. They killed everybody. And he said, I'm in charge. Now, that means if you're Nissenbeck or his father, it's the early 1830s, especially 1834, when the Fellahin Rebellion, when the Peasant Revolt broke out, and the peasants went wild and rioted and this and that and the other everywhere, and destroyed wherever they saw. And Jeffers is a fit of violence. They went and destroyed a lot of Jewish stuff in Svan, including the printing press. So what do you do? See, so he had a chutzpah. See, so and his son went to Ibrahim Pasha, the big guy himself. And he said, listen, those who are rebelling against you destroyed my business. I came in here as a plus for the economy. I have an idea that we're going to start a business of printing Jewish books and we'll export them to Chutzarts, which means foreign money will come in, which is what you want for your economy. You're a modern guy. You understand that. And anyway, when they did this violent act against me, there's rebellion against you because you stand for law and order and look what they did to me. And it's a, they, and he must have known how to talk to the guy, you know, because uh, Ibrahim Pasha said, you know, you're 100% right. What I'm going to do is I'm going to give you as a compensation a whole town, a village, uh, Chernak, that you will own, <laughs> right? And 
try to reset your business up over there. And all all the money that you lost is all to these rights. I hope now that you own this uh, karka and you will be the landowner so that the guy who worked there will be your avonim, your peasants, that you'll be able to recoup your losses. So this is nuts. A guy who's a chassid for British, that became like a pasha, and he owns all these guyim. Really, the guyim in that village were okay with it because he had already hooked up with them and said, I'll treat you well. You'll be better off than if you're under some other guy. So he must have been a very clever guy to pull this off. There were Druze, you know, Druze. So he said, I'll treat you good, and, you know, let's sit over here. So he started the first Jewish farm in Israel, but in a Hasidic way. He didn't do the work. <laughs> He's the owner, and the local guys did the work. Okay? Uh, the thing is, this happened in 1834, 1835. Uh, and he was so happy, he published a safer from deleting Misnagid, what you and I call the Pas Shulchan, if you know what that is, that's the... Oh, this year's Shemitah. That's one of the great swarm on Shemitah. The Pasa Shulchan. For Tom de Gros. And he published it for free because he said he was in a good mood. But eventually, what happened was the international climate changed and the, um, the British, the French, and the others forced Mehmet Ali to withdraw from Palestine and Syria, and the Turks came back. The Turks came back. They weren't interested in helping anybody who helped Ibrahim Pasha. You understand? So basically, you know, their situation was bad. Uh, they, 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 they didn't have the advantages they once had, and the locals knew they didn't have to listen to them. Um, the father went back to spot, and the son, I think, if I remember correctly, stayed to run the business, which is a farm. But it's, it's a farm where you have all these guys working for you. During the week, he only came to home on Shabbos to Tzvat. And meanwhile, he got married. It was during this time that Tzvat, most of the Ashkenazim, two-thirds of them, died in a great earthquake. 1837 was a tremendous earthquake. An attack by the Druze. Um, we know, first of all, me, myself, and I, I had an ancestor. This is interesting. Uh, that would be my mother's great-great-great-great-grandfather, something like that. Name was Isaac Goldis, and he moved from Poland to Tzfat in the 1830s. Mom was like we're talking about. It. Took a year to get there. He he had bad timing. In my family, they got bad timing. He came and was killed in the earthquake. There were like 900 Ashkenazim and 600 got killed or something like that, something along those lines. So uh, it wasn't a pushy thing at all to live in Eretz in those days. Okay, it wasn't a pushy thing at all. Now. um... Because the political conditions changed, so the family, oh, by the way, I got to tell you, he got married, Nissen, back, and he had two kids, I think, if I remember correctly, who was visiting, say, the, the Briss, for the first son, his name was Shmuel, I believe, he held in his village that he owned in Chernak, and who showed up the morning of the Briss, who walked in? Sir Moses Montefiore and his wife. So happened to be, by accident, Montefiore was visiting. He was the only guy that was crazy enough to visit Eretz Yisrael in those years, 1820s and 30s, you know, when you took your life in your hands. 
and he heard there's a Jewish guy, a from guy, who is trying to make a parnosa in Eretz Yisrael. And he was very interested. And they, <laughs> and this, in fact, wasn't stupid. He said, he goes, oh, Montefiore is here. You be the Sandik. <laughs> you know, that'll always help him out. And I have no doubt that Montefiore is like, oh, if I'm the Sandik, I'll give the baby a present, you know. <laughs> Uh, I'm sure the rabbi was okay with that. Uh, but this established a relationship, interestingly, between Nissenbeck and Montefiore. Now, here's the thing. I spoke some time ago about the Laren brothers, if you remember. And they ran most of the money operation, sending money to Eretz Yisrael for the Ashkenazim. Used to collect all the money in Amsterdam, and then they would send it like a check. They were very ideological in the sense that they held, for various reasons, no one should make Aliyah unless they're coming strictly to learn. <laughs> those were anti-Parnoso. I know it sounds funny. That's what it was. The only one Eretz world become just like everywhere else. It should be Dafka for Jews who are coming there to sit and learn. Right? Uh, anybody who wants to set a business, he wouldn't help them. They were against them moving there. There was a Hasidic guy who, who raised money for a business, and the ship, he drowned on the ship on the way to Israel, and Laren said, see, it was Minash Amayim. That's the type of guy they were. But that's not who Nissan Beck was, or a lot of other people. Their attitude was as follows. What's wrong with somebody coming and trying to make economic living in Eretz Rome and even prospering? Adraba. That's the only way you'll get a lot of Jews to move here. Right? That's good. Of course we respect learning. And if somebody wants to come and sit and learn, call a cover. But then you had to depend on the Chalukah and the money coming in. And you know how that works. If the money's coming in, somebody's getting the money and giving it out. And what are they taking off the top? I'm serious. And there's always was a scandal how the money's given out in Israel. There's a running scandal for hundreds of years that the Chacham Svi was already complaining about. Because money corrupts, you cannot deny it. And a lot of money corrupts a lot. And here are people saying, I'm trying to beat the system. I don't want to be dependent on your money. I want to set up a business and make my own parnasa. I'm from, what am I doing wrong? I want to live in Israel because I live in Israel. So the other guy said, you shouldn't live in Israel if you make your parnasa. Why? Where'd you get that from? What's wrong with what I'm doing? Okay? So I know it sounds funny, but this was a big seller of machlokes. Montefiore, who was an Orthodox Jew, I would call today modern Orthodox, said, I don't get this. To me, I'm not a Tamakacham, I don't claim to be, but it's true. And I respect learning and I support Kolos, and I do. But it just seems to me, as a matter of common sense, what we want to do is get as many Jews to move to Eretz Israel as we possibly can. No. Why? Because people like Montefiore and some of these others were dreamers. The Hainup, we would like to see a state of Israel, not in the form that it eventually took necessarily, but they like to see a Jewish country. But they're realistic enough to say, we can't come out and say we want a Jewish state. Not at that time. First, you have to have Jews moving in Israel. Not a few thousand. So let's create conditions in which Jews voluntarily will want to leave the diaspora from Europe, Eastern Europe especially, and move freely and voluntarily to Israel, 
and live there like normal. What do they do in Europe? There's no such thing as somebody sitting and learning in Europe without a parnos that didn't exist. Unless he had a sugar daddy behind him. There weren't too many of those. There weren't too many of those. So, how come you're trying to make Eretz Yisrael in such a way that it's only for a few? So a guy like Montefiore said, I'm a multimillionaire. I'm interested in bankrolling economic opportunities that will enable Jews to come and make a living in Eretz Yisrael. Businesses, crafts, you know, villages, whatever. From Jews. I'm not talking about anything unfrum. The people I'm talking about will want to be summer term business. But they also want to make a business, a living, a this and the other. Could be a farmer, could be a shoemaker, could be a, a, a capitalist, like we said before. Uh, a printing press is a business. An import-export is a business. Some other kind of a store is a business. You know, like that. Okay? And so when he met Nissan Beck, he said, this is great. This is a from guy. Obviously, he was a chassid. He's a from guy. He's very practical. And he wanted to set up a business. In this case, printing. That's a good business. That's a legitimate business. And so Montefiore tried to help him. But they had to move to Yerushalayim in 1840 when the Turks came back in. And that means for the next uh, 40 years, 50 years, whatever it was, they're Yerushalayim people. But in Yerushalayim, um, let's put it this way. The Jewish community of Jerusalem expanded tremendously in relative terms in the course of the 1800s. Yerushalayim came to place where there are lots of Jews. I mean, uh, how many were there? Let me see. Okay, I just pulled up the figures of the Jewish population of Jerusalem in the 1800s. Um, in 1838, you had 3,000. Uh, that's Ashkenaz and Sephardim, of course. Listen closely to what I'm about to tell you. In 1838, 3,000. Six years later, it's more than double, 7,100. From 3,000 to 7,000. And then, give it another from four years, it's 10,000. That shows you a lot of people were making Aliyah. Not millions, but, you know, relative. Uh, by 1850, you're talking about 13,000. Uh, by 1853... I mean, if these numbers are true, there's 8,000. No, that's a French figure. Uh, about 13,000. That seems to be the number. And then and by the 1870s, it's like 15,000, something like that. That's a gunstickle Jewish community. Okay? That's a big Jewish community. Um, you see what I'm saying? So our hero lived there at a time when there was, if you live in Yerushalayim, it's a place where... Not not all at once. It's like a neighborhood in America. People are moving in. Not a million at a time, but people are constantly moving in. Um, the question is, where's it going to go? A lot of these people came with the idea, like, I'm just going to sit and learn. And they'll be supported by money coming from Chutzlarts. Which, of course, originally is the difference in Chutzlarts if they're raising money for two, 3,000 people or raising money for 15,000 people. That's number one. Number two, who gets what in my portion? But they're also, from these people moving in, a lot of people say, I don't want this whole business. Right? I don't believe in this whole thing. I want to move to Israel and, you know, uh, I'll make my own business. I'll start a, I'm coming with capital, perhaps, or something like that. 
you know, and I'll, and I'll make it work. Like, what's wrong with that? What's what's the problem with that? Okay. Um, now, that's part of the story. Another part of the story, this guy was smart. Um, I think he didn't agree with the people in charge of the Chalukah giving out the money. And I would even go so far as to say that it was very much weighted in favor of the Misnagdim and the Nachasidim. So he figured he'll do an end run around this. And he traveled already like in 1840, 1830, 1940 to uh, Europe. There you go, that ship again. Six-month journey. Take a boat from Akko to Istanbul, from Istanbul up to Odessa, then to Odessa. And he went to see the original Rebbe, which was how I mentioned last week. And basically, the idea, this is just before the Rebbe ran away from Russia. And the Rebbe was in charge of a lot of money. Uh, and I'm sure they don't tell you exactly I'm sure he was trying to say like this uh, the heck with the Chalukah system can you arrange that the money should go straight to me and we'll give it out just for the Hasidim plus that we should raise money for businesses like we say today a business fund isn't that interesting and he came back I think five or six times he went to see the Rishon Rebbe and his successors, always with this idea that let's see if we can do something practical and build up the Jewish situation, not just the people sitting and learning. Now, if it's the middle 1800s, the big need is for housing and for businesses. Um, he became very involved, very interesting to me, in buying, trying to buy houses or build houses make Jewish neighborhoods the Jews will come in and if you have a, think about what I'm about to tell you if you have a Jewish neighborhood of 20, 30 families, somebody's going to open a pizza shop as we would say today right? somebody's going to open a, you know, a bakery, somebody's going to because you have the, the, the Jewish population there, I think that's how he was thinking they're very practical down to earth and um, like I said before the original Rebbe who later became the Sadegar Rebbe had access to money as if he's living in the palace. And the rebel was interested in Eric's draw stuff. As I mentioned last week, I think he himself was thinking about going there. Never happened. Uh, and he got him the money. Now, the thing is, you couldn't get nothing done unless you knew who to bribe. It's not even a question of bribing. It got to win the good will of various Turkish officials. Uh... He made it, him and his father, I don't know how, but they made it their business to buddy up to all these Muslims, gain the respect of these guys, which means you had to handle yourself in a certain way. You had to dress in a certain way. They say, you know, the Muslims stood up when he came in. You know, he 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 had a hadras, you know, a, an imposing presence. They must have given thought to all this. And he was able to get stuff from the Turkish rulers uh, that others couldn't get. In the course of all this comes the thing he's most famous for. Oh, there's a lot of legends connected with it. And that is that he talked with the original Rebbe. Here again, I'm talking about going around the Kolels, around the Misnagdim. They were working on building up the Misnagat Shul, which is the Chorba Synagogue. 
he said, I want to make a Hasidic Shishol. And this is part. Which he called to various Yisrael after the, after the original Rebbe. The Yisrael. Uh, in order to get that to happen, you have to buy land. You have to get permission to build a shul. If it wasn't 1840s, he would never get this because the shul, first of all, the Turks never let you build a new shul. You could only r- repair an old one. And even that, you had to have a special permit in the old days. And certainly not a magnificent synagogue. But since the 1840s and 50s, Turkey's on the ropes. They're scared of Russia. They got to kiss up to England and France and Austria. And so they'll allow these guys to do that. Our hero was Austrian by nationality. Okay? Uh, now, Berdichev is really in Russia, but I imagine he probably fomented it. Um, and I can just imagine the Sadegir Rebbe, who's now Austrian, you know, it's all bribery anyway. He probably got him a citizenship and junk like that. The reason I say it is because at one point, the, the governor of Jerusalem, the Turk, said, you know, I like you very much. I'll make you the chief rabbi at Ashkenaz. But he said, I don't want to do that because then I have to give up my Austrian citizenship. You know what I'm saying? Which is interesting. Now, one of the most interesting projects that I know that he did was what they called Nissenbeck's Houses, Nissenbeck's Heiser. I used to hear about this when I was a little kid. Well, I wasn't a little kid, but many years ago, when before I was married, so we used to live in an apartment complex, and nearby was the Rebbitz and Rabinowitz. And uh, the old Rebbitz and Rabinowitz Mordechai is a famous tzaddik of old, and she was a born Yerushalmi. So she must have been born around 1900 or something like that. And, um, uh, what do you call it? You know, from the old Yerushalayim, Homener. And, uh, she was always talking about that she lived near Nissenbeck's Heiser, right? And Montefiore's Heiser, the, these houses. What are you talking about? One of the ideas he had was to buy a little piece of land and build a whole bunch of Jewish houses on there and set up a Jewish neighborhood. One of them was right near the Shar Shechem. Isn't that funny? If this was there, and they made it. He built something called uh, Nissan Beck's Houses. There was a whole little community right near the Shar Shechem, which say is dangerous. Uh, Musrara. And there was a Jewish neighborhood until the 1929 with the pogroms and the Jews ran away. Um... He had, and I remember he brought in Jews from Georgia and Turkestan, whatever. I don't know how he did that. And there were a number of other places in the old city. Did you ever go, oh, and the last time I was in Israel, we went on the, um, is it a Terat Kohanim? Is that what it's called? I'm sure many of you have done this. They take you on a tour of the Jewish houses in the old city. Current and past. In other words, when you go through what we call today the Muslim quarter and all this junk, Christian quarter, so that's what it is now. And the British threw the Jews out of the other neighborhoods. It's a long story. But if you went, I would say, 120 years ago, 110 years ago, the within the four walls of the old city, it wasn't only the Rova where Jews lived. Of course, they lived there. But there are little pockets of Jews all over the place. And there were shuls, little communities of Yemenite Jews, of this type of Jews, that kind of Jews. Over here, over there, smack in the middle of the Arab thing here, smack in the middle of the Christian thing over there, smack in the middle of the Muslim business over there. 
And there are groups in Israel which make it their business to buy all this back or acquire the houses in one way or the other. And they're the ones who get these mitnachlin to live that your only Jewish house and everybody around you is a, is a Muslim Palestinian. They want to kill you. And the Israeli army has to give them 24-7 protection. Uh, I don't know if you've ever seen that. It's very interesting. Let me put it this way. If I was one of those people and I want my kid, let's say I have a, a six-year-old girl, to go and play in Shabbos with a friend, she can't go out of my house to visit a friend who lives two, three, four blocks away in the old city without two Israeli guards going with her. They're just ready 24-7. That's what they do. You know what I'm saying? I mean, that's what's necessary. Because otherwise, they'll stab you right on the spot. As they gate this. But I'm talking in the 1800s, when it was, so to speak, safer. And they didn't care where the Jews lived. You know? And uh, he was very active in this kind of business of trying to locate... In other words, very um, down-to-earth, practical building up the Jewish population of Yerushalayim and of Eretz Yisrael Bechlal, right? In this context, one of his projects was this big shul, which they called the Eretz Yisrael Shul, which he eventually built, cost a lot of money. But a guy like this, if I understand him, figures like this. It's very Jewish. I have a project. Here's a project. Let's say it costs $10 million. The question then becomes how to raise the $10 million. But if I, me, myself, and I can go raise the money, me, myself, and I, if I can get people to give me the $10 million, I can tell the whole world to go jump in a lake because I have the capital to do whatever I want. So I don't need to get the reshus from this group and the askama from that group, whatever. I just need the cash. And so he went a bunch of times to visit the original Rebbe and his successors because they had access to money and they could activate Hasidim and others. And, uh, you know, this in Poland and Russia and launch, uh, what's the right word, uh, fundraising campaigns. And eventually he raised whatever money he needed. Uh, at that time, the Russian government itself, the Tsar of Russia, 1850s, Nicholas I, the moms that I talked about before, the enemy of the Jews, he wanted, for his own reasons, because a ton of Russians, Christians, used to come visit this, the holy sites of the Christians in Palestine. A ton. You don't know that. A ton. A lot more Russians used to come every year visit Israel than Jews, I'm sorry to say. And where do they stay? Where do they eat? As a chesed, from Russian Christian perspective, he wanted to set up, like we'd say, free hostels and all that kind of junk. For the Russian pilgrims, the place you can stay, take a bath, have a meal, do Russian stuff while you visit the holy place and then you go back to Russia. This, my friends, is what we call today the Russian compound. Smack in the heart of Jerusalem. Uh, which is big and fancy. They, they use it for, Israel uses it for administrative office, some of the things. There are churches here that hold the guns of business. It belongs to Russia today. Israel has given it to Putin. Now, the car coming. So our hero... He simply went to whoever the architect was, was doing all these Russian churches. And he said, listen, I want you to make me a nice synagogue. Eppinger was the guy's name. So he's a guy, but he was a big architect. And he made the plans for the Tiferes Yisrael Shul. 
It's a big fancy business. And eventually he pulled it off. So here's somebody's living in Yerushalayim full of plans, full of ideas. But they all require money. Everything requires money. But he wasn't ashamed to go and constantly fundraise. He would go to Montefiore to help him, you know, say, can I set up a, a place for a weaving for women? Whatever, all kind of little projects. Um, they will be profitable in turn money and give people a skill. And for the show, for the chassidim. And I'm sure in his ideas like this, it'll have a big, magnificent show. The Rebbe will move here. If the Rebbe moves to Yerushalayim, probably a lot of chassidim will move here. If a lot of chassidim move to Yerushalayim, that itself will give us a yad and a shlita in the whole place. We won't have to worry about any other group. We won't have to worry about the masnagdom and the chalukah and this and that and the other. We'll have our own situation, which wasn't false. Now, the rabbis didn't move there in the end. But this was the plan, I think. Uh, and eventually, you know, there were a lot of impediments. The Turkish government didn't want to give him permission. But he used his uh, connections with the Sadagir, who had connections with the Austrian government, as I described last week, uh, and, you know, they knew who to lobby in the Austrian capital. And by the time we're talking about, which is the 1850s and 60s, so with a new emperor, Franz Josef, who at this stage was actually uh, pro-Jewish. That might be a little too strong of a term, but he certainly wasn't anti-Jewish. There are a bunch of reasons for that. So the Habsburgs. Uh, Franz Josef, the emperor Francis Joseph, ruled for 68 years. From 1848 to 1916 when he died. That's a long time. And I would say, in generally speaking, certainly by this time and afterwards, he had a lot of trouble in his empire. He realized the Jews are not a trouble. The Frum Jews are definitely not a trouble. Whatever they, they might be a turn on and turn off, they're not a political problem at all. You know what I'm saying? You look at the Hungarians, it's a problem. You look at the Czechs and the Slovaks and the Slovenes and the Croats the Serbs and the Italians and who knows what, it's all a problem. The Jews are just, you know, a little, uh, what's the right word? Odious. <laughs> right? See them, whatever. They're not a problem. They're very loyal. And so, the Emperor Franz Josef used his uh, uh, influence in Turkey and he got them all the permits. And it's famous in 1869, the Emperor Franz Josef visited Palestine because they just made the Suez Canal dug it, and as a celebration, they invited all the crowned heads of Europe, because the Suez Canal was a big deal, and they all came, the Emperor of Russia, the Emperor of Germany, Napoleon of France, Napoleon III, and Franz Josef came there, and he visited um, Yerushalayim, among other things, because he was a from Catholic, and when he visited all the Catholic places, he gave them a lot of money, because they're from Catholic, he was also invited to visit the old city. I'm talking about the Rova. On the following basis, a lot of these institutions are built by Austrian Jews. It's the Austrian emperor. They're like your citizens. Like Nissen Beck is an Austrian citizen. Get it? Um, he came there. He visited. And uh, they showed him the shul, which is built. Now there's a famous mic, so hold him for a second. Okay. Um, I had to change this. There's a very famous mice. I don't think it's true. It's a classic story. And it reflects, as these stories do, a historical reality. And that goes like this. When Franz Josef, the Austrian emperor, visited the Jewish quarter, 
1869. So the shul, this shul, as you say, the Pharisee shul was mostly built, but there wasn't a top, there wasn't a roof. Uh, it hadn't gotten around to that, and the money ran out, whatever it is. And the story is that when they showed him the building, he saw it was very impressive. What happened to the dome? And this, in fact, said, like, you know, who was a diplomat, said, you see, Your Majesty, not only the people take off their hat when the emperor comes in, but even the buildings take off their hat when the emperor comes in. And Francis said, oh, that's a good joke. But what's the shot? And he said, we ran out of money. We didn't have money to build the roof. And story is Francis said, send me the bill, I'll cover it. And he paid for it. And after that, they used to call it Francis. It was Yamaka. That's the story. I don't think that's exactly correct. But it is true that when they're raising money for the thing, they were short here and there. And he sent a thousand francs or whatever it was, uh, a nice a nice size check, not gigantic at all, but a nice size check uh, to help pay for the show. And that was frontline news because that a Catholic emperor should send a nice check to build a Jewish Orthodox Jewish synagogue in Jerusalem in Israel, in, in Palestine, was a big item. And it was a gesture. And it was a good By the way, it's a good gesture. There's nothing wrong with it. It's not exactly the same thing as saying, I'll pay for the roof. But that's how these mices happen. The shul was eventually built. And that means if you were in uh 100 years ago, before 1948, in the old city, they have two large synagogues, very large and handsome synagogues. One would be the Chorvah Shul, and one would be the other one, the Teres Yisrael. One would be Nusach Ashkenaz, one would be Nusach Svad. The official one of the chief rabbi would be the Ashkenaz one. I'll give you an example. Uh, Shmuel Salanter, or Kulk, Herzog, people like that, they were official Ashkenazi rabbis. So when they would have a public pronouncement or a public shear, they'd be in the Chorvashol. Um The chief rabbis of Israel were not Hasidic, and therefore they didn't do, you know, Nusach Svarad. But if you're a Nusach Svarad guy, if you're a Polish Yid, and you're visiting Eretz Israel before the 1948, you want to tell Yushalayim, that's where you went to, went to the Tefres Israel Shul. In 1948, the war broke out. The Jordanians were besieging the old city. In other words, the Jordanians had the Muslim quarter, the Christian quarters, and the other, just the Jews held on in the Jewish quarter. And they were besieged. The Haganah, uh, for better or worse, used the tall buildings of the Chorba and the other one as military outposts. Uh, when the Jews lost and were kicked out of the old city, and that's what happened in June, I guess, of 48, so uh, the Jordanians took their business to destroy the building completely, both shoals. First of all, it had been used against them, but second of all, it was, you know, what's the right word? They didn't want to have any symbols of anything Jewish. The imams trashed the neighborhood, and to the best of their ability, they destroyed all the Jewish stuff. So the building lasted, you know, 80 years or something like that, until it was destroyed. Um, you and I know that they've rebuilt the Chorvashol recently, and I'm always told I don't keep up with it. My son-in-law said it's still any day should be also a, I haven't heard anything about it. 
that they're doing the same thing for the Nissan Bechel, that the uh, Tiferes Yisrael Synagogue, Yushalayim, which is the Nusach Spired one, fancy schmancy, big proportions, beautiful and all the rest of it is being rebuilt. I remember reading a couple years ago that the Palestinians said, oh, if they do that, we'll declare war. But they always say that. Uh, so I don't know. But this became the Nisbe Shul. And since the guy built it, he raised the money, he did all the trouble, and he certainly took all the trouble to build it. So of course, he was the Gabbai. And that's what he was. So here's somebody for the last 40 years of his life, 50, 40, 50 years of his life, was very actively involved in trying to build a Beretz Yisrael at a time when there was no politics involved, the whole idea was to create conditions and infrastructure of some sort that will enable Jews to move here. If we ever get a large Jewish population in Israel, then we'll see what happens. That was the way people looked at it in the 19th century. Nobody said, we want a state now or tomorrow. That only came with Theodore Herzl in 1897. You get it? Before that, nobody talked like that. Everybody said, which means you have to work in the present, practical. Bring another family, and another family, and another family. And the etzimitzius of having decent size and hopefully large sized Jewish communities, that alone will create its own facts. That's how people saw it in the 19th century, including our hero. I'm not saying he was wrong. I'm not saying he was wrong at all. But you couldn't talk about getting a Jewish malucha. If there's nobody there, you understand? And so this was the reality in which they were living. The one issue left was very controversial is the following. Parnassa. What do you do for the Parnassa problem? Here's a problem you had in Eretz Yisrael then, and we still have it in many circles today. Is there any room for Limunichol Bichlal? Right? Bichlal. As you know, in Eretz Yisrael, in the Haredi world, it's evolved in a funny way, in which there's Limunichol for girls and not for boys. The Beis Yaakovs and the others actually have a decent uh, secular program. The reason is because the girls got to go and work, support their husbands while he's learning. They got to get a job. Can't get a job in nowadays without some kind of secular education. It's just the way it is. The whole secular culture is opposed to Frumkite. So what do you do? There's your problem. There's your problem. At the time we're talking about, in the first half of the 1800s, the type of people, by and large, that were making Aliyah, or I shouldn't say, many of them, they were running away from Europe, which they saw as treif. And they figured Jerusalem at least should be a pure center with nothing limunichol. That was the theory of Lehrer brothers in Amsterdam and the others. People should just come and sit and learn and that sort of thing. And it should be Tahiris Altaris HaKodesh. But more practical people, including our hero, meaning including from Jews, very from Jews, they completely disagree with that. Of course there's a centrality of Torah learning. That goes without question. But we have to have some kind of situation in which people can make a pronouncement. We have to modernize the Jewish yeshiv to some degree. Um, how do you do that? 
you're going to have to have some kind of secular education, some kind. Starting 1840s and 50s, especially, and afterwards, rich Jews would give money to start schools in Yerushalayim elsewhere. Rothschild, Lemuel, this, that, and the other. As soon as somebody would come to Yerushalayim, and they were under protection of the consul, so you couldn't beat them up. And they would say, we want to set up a school and send your kids over here. The Rabbana will put out a cherem, because he said, we think it's a reform in disguise. Sometimes that's exactly what it was. Other times not. So in this and back, it was a from guy with a, with a strime on a kapota and all the rest of it. He and people like him, they actually supported it. They said, we need some kind of limurichot. Maybe a school like Montefiore is to teach the girls sewing and knitting and that sort of thing. So you have a career as a seamstress. You're not talking about taking philosophy courses over here, you know. Um, others would say learn uh, skills, trade, something, right? The issue is not to learn high-level European philosophy and atheism and things like that. The idea was to teach the people uh, foreign languages in which they can then acquire skills and use it for personal purposes. All I can tell you is opinions were split very sharply in the front community precisely over this issue. It's hard to find a book today that's written from unbiased point of view. Either you get the left-wing books that talk about the Korean as a bunch of nuts, or you get the right-wing books that say everybody wanted to make a school that was secretly an agent of Reform Central Headquarters in Berlin. Neither of which is true. And there was tremendous poverty and they were afraid their kids would go off to Derech because of, what shall I say, Limunichol. I understand that. But it's also true, plenty of kids went off to Derech because of tremendous poverty. Uh, you still had child marriages. I'm talking about Ashkenaz. You know, girls getting married 13, 14 years old, that kind of thing. It wasn't what we would call today normal. Now, that's a Western term. And you can only say, Cassie, you're giving a Western spin on it. Yes, I am. It's the 19th century. 19th century is a Western century. And so the trick was always, how do you create what everybody's looking for around the world, which is a firm situation with a good limited hole, but not at the expense of limited kodeshes, to use my expression. And so interestingly, this and Beck always supported these things. They got a lot of heat from the others. And there were times he said, I'll back you up, but then he couldn't back him up in the end because he said, you know, the public opinion in uh, Yerushalayim, Meisham, is too much against me. And so it's, it's just very interesting. His brother-in-law started a newspaper to push these ideas, Chavaselis. What I'm talking about is the in-house Lashon Hara inter-Jewish communal politics of the late 19th century. And... Uh, Yerushalayim was therefore culturally a very interesting place and so this is not unfamiliar to us today it's like these guys, I don't live in New York I know these guys suing the Hasidim in the federal courts whatever, because they give zero uh, education to the kids now the Hasidim are obviously going to say like this we don't want to trade up the kids the counter argument is you leave a guy who's 20 years old, can't read English can't make a parnasa so what do you do? You know, which is right. So who's right? The guy suing them and the bunch of mustard? Or the communities leaving them, you know, in a state of total permanent economic dependence? It's complicated. 
So he lived in a complicated time. Uh, by the time he died, which is in the late 1800s, I bet you Shalim had 20, 25,000 Jews. It was a big, that's big. That was the number one headquarters of, Jew, of Jewish population in Israel. But the Haredim were really ones dominating, and all there was a center and the left wing. Uh, the modern Zionism of Israel would not come from Yerushalayim. You understand? The Zionist movement which started these uh, Moshavot, Kibbutzim, all this other business. Rothschild, the first Aliyah, the second Aliyah, that was not Yerushalayim. This is interesting. It like parallel. They had two different um, uh, cultures. Uh, and eventually, the non-Yerushalmis physically took over Yerushalayim in the course of the 20th century. Now, in the 21st century, it's a reverse. You know, the Haredim are crowding out the others. So Shalim has a very unusual and interesting uh, seesaw kind of relationship between two different Jewish populations. It's almost like the Gemara said with Jerusalem and Caesarea. In Malizu, it's Chaser Zu. Our hero was an important person in the controversies of the 19th century, which had never settled. But by the end of the 19th century, the Jewish situation in Israel was vastly different than it had been at the end of the 18th century. Uh, the issues I raised are existential issues. You have Limunichol, you don't have Limunichol. Do you believe in, uh, like we say today, vocational training? You don't. Obviously, now we live in a post-industrial age, modern economy, whole new set of challenges, let alone all the stuff from the secular culture that's not the same as it was in the 19th century culture. But in those era, in that era, I would say they had uh, unusual people, likeness and back. These would be the only people that would say, I choose to live my life in Eretz Yisrael. I'm willing to travel thousands and thousands of miles to raise money for my projects because I don't want to live my life controlled by others. And I think my ideas are better. And I know the golden rule of life is he who has the gold rules. If I raise the money, I can make a project happen. If I don't, it won't. So I share this with you because um, Israel in the 19th century, not many people know so much about it, especially in the first day of the 19th century. If this is a subject that inter interests you, I would recommend a book not so well known um, by, called Mystics and Missionaries by Sherman Lieber about Jews in Palestine in 1799-1840 because the missionaries were a big problem in the 1800s in Israel. I just don't have the time now to go into it. Uh, and our hero played a role in it. But I see I've gone way over time. So let me just once again thank the sponsors today. Uh, I really do pay tribute to the memory of two people I knew very well, Rebenson Chabalski and Jay Shuchman, the Neshama Shnavadaliyah. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com.